Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Scottish Independence Podcasts. Fiona and Marlene here and we've been out and about. We've been to a conference in Perth which was put on by the Revive Coalition. Uh, That's a coalition of various different interest groups campaigning for the reform of grouse moors. Now the Wildlife Management and Muirburn Bill is going through Holyrood right now, so this is very topical. But do we know what the issues are for Muirburn, raptor persecution, grouse moors? What is the problem with grouse moors? Let's find out. With the help of our guest, Max Wisnowski, who is the campaign manager for the Revive Coalition, and will also be uh, listening to some clips from the conference. Once we know what the Muirburn Bill is all about, we'll be listening to a snippet from that bill being presented in Holyrood. The coalition consists of Commonweal, the League Against Cruel Sports, Friends of the Earth Scotland, One Kind and Raptor Persecution UK. And we we were quite taken with that when we were there, weren't we? Because, you know, I mean, coalition just is the good word for it. and, And they've all got their own angle to come in at. But there's a lot of overlap between where their interests and and their aims are. Both of us were sort of struck by that as just a really good model for getting people together to get things done. Yeah, absolutely. And just the the number of different interests that kind of find themselves in that same space. And in this programme, we're going to focus mainly on the the grouse moor, muirburn and raptor element of it. It also goes into land justice and land reform and local democracy, much bigger topics, which we will come back to, I think. But for this one, um, because the Wildlife Management and Muirburn Bill is making its way through Holyrood at the moment, we thought this is really good to use some of the clips from the conference because it helps us to really understand some of the issues that are in that bill. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, And first, we had a little chat with uh, Max Wisnowski, who's the campaign manager for Revive. We asked him how he found himself in that role. I started this in, I think, mid-2018, before the Revive Coalition launched. Previously to that, I was working for uh, Commonweal, pro-independence think tank, as I'm sure you know. And uh, I was the campaigns person for that, and I enjoyed that a lot and found out this opportunity was coming. One of the things I particularly enjoyed with Commonweal was the land reform question. Uh, I did work with Leslie Riddich and Andy Whiteman and others on a thing called Ourland. So, and that was a post, 2016 onwards, uh, did mm. our land festivals, and yeah, it was fantastic. So, I mean, I've always been particularly interested in this issue, and yeah, I mean, this opportunity to do this particular line of work was something I couldn't quite say no to. <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's great if you can actually end up in a field that you're you're passionate about. What a- the social media element of the campaign, I mean, that's the bit I noticed, I have to say. It felt very subtle to me. I felt I was being dropped little interesting breadcrumbs and I ended up following this trail to the point where suddenly tickets were available for a conference and we went, oh, let's go to this. But I thought that that was probably quite cleverly managed to to build interest and, and everything along the way. So was that a, a conscious tactic that you used? Yeah, actually, no, I think there was a tactic there uh, just to bring attention to the issue, but it wasn't conference specific. It was just about the whole campaign, putting out information here and there, uh, the polling, putting out, uh, you know, videos that we've been doing because it's just explaining the issue, trying to continually build support for it, you know. The Revive Conference in Perth 
what a successful event. What's your reflections of it? Was Did it go by in a blur? It must have been months of work leading up to it. Uh, it was quite smooth, actually. I mean, I'm lucky to have some good colleagues that helped me with it, but um, did a lot of the good work. Uh, but, yeah, it was, I think, because, you know, we've developed a bit of a reputation now for doing good work. I mean, getting people involved wasn't actually too difficult. Uh, we had, you know, a, a lot of fantastic speakers and presences throughout the day and organisations that were part of it uh, that weren't afraid actually they, they were keen to join in and be part of it so and getting people there was in terms of organizations was uh, really no problem at all uh, uh, which is a great great sign I think and when it came to the audience actually you, especially in these days I think it's quite difficult to get audiences get people to things it's a lot harder than it used to be pre covid pandemic times i would say you know and obviously and saying that we still managed to get about 700 people there which was beyond our expectations i mean we're hoping you know if we could get 500 or so that would have been great but 700 yeah we're quite pleased with it and yeah uh, as for the day itself and i remember most of it i didn't go through in a blur but i think it was quite i felt quite relaxed during it uh, the conference but i think that was just because everything was in hand and it was just and everyone knew for a bit everyone knew uh what they had to say and how to contribute and the questions from the audiences were great and yeah it flowed by quite well i think i thought it was a great move getting chris packham there i really appreciated some of his you know it's quite casually stated kind of input between people but i thought that that worked really well yeah chris is fantastic i've just known him for the campaign a, a little bit now for quite a, while, a short while now and but he's always he always turns up he always brings his a-game uh, yeah. when it comes to things he's passionate about and it's he is really passionate about uh this issue of fixing scotland's uplands and reforming rouse moors among many other things and i think that's what revive does it go, go it, it brings people together that wouldn't necessarily have come yeah. together the first clip from the conference is Chris Packham. Uh, one thing just to be aware of, the sound quality, at first it seems a little bit clippy. That's because the recording went through the venue's own sound system. So for some reason, it's left us with a little bit of slightly distorted the audio, but you stop noticing it after the first couple of sentences. So hopefully nobody really minds that. We, we certainly found it wasn't a problem. But just be aware that, that it's not your um, system, it is the, the recording audio. Over to Chris Packham. I can tell you that since 1970, we've lost 69% of the world's wildlife. We are one of the most nature-depleted set of nations anywhere on the planet. And yet here we are, the most concerned. People who have given large proportions of their lives and energies over trying to address these issues. We have to collectively accept that at this point in time, we've largely been losing. Now that might sound demoralizing, but it isn't. Because whilst we have been monitoring those declines, we have been putting together a portfolio of technologies, abilities, manifesting your energies, trying and testing techniques for nature repair, recovery and restoration. And they've been working. I had the enormous privilege of visiting Dundragon Trees for Life project a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely fantastic. Early stages, but clear vision, clear tried and tested techniques being implemented, positive benefits for wildlife, the landscape, and the people that live and work in that landscape. Ditto, of course, larger projects have been running slightly longer, like Cairndorms Connect. So here in Scotland, we 
are looking at real solutions being implemented. But of course, not being implemented broadly enough and rapidly enough. And that's another one of those fundamental reasons why we are here today. Because we know that to turn that around, to turn the state of the UK's nature around, we need to have a far broader positive impact. We're also here, I think, with an opportunity to celebrate some symbolic changes that we've instigated. I said symbolic changes, not symbolic victories. Because if I were to use the word victory, it might imply that we'd overcome an adversary. But I think this idea that we are on two sides of a debate, that everything's polarised, may be contemporaneous with other aspects of our politics and society and lives, but it's not one that Revive want to maintain in the areas of work that they're doing. So a symbolic advancement came this week where the Scottish Government, that's not us here with a focus concerned uh, about animal welfare, but the Scottish Government, thereby those who represent the people of Scotland, have intimated that in the very near future they will ban snares. I'd like to offer mine and our congratulations to many of the people that led the lobbying campaign They've given enormous amounts of their time, effort and energy to draw together the information, present that in a, a presentable, rational way to those politicians, but also to the Scottish Government for making this significant advancement. Now, will it radically transform Scotland's landscape, the impact that that has on its wildlife and the people that live there? Broadly, no, because of the issues that I've already spoken about. Will a ban on snares have an impact on climate breakdown? Very, 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 very indirectly. So what is it important for? Well, what is strategic, symbolic importance says is that here we have a body of people who've worked effectively to lead to a positive change. We have a receptive body of people, your government, that are going to instigate that change. It's part of a portfolio of positive movements. And I believe that as that portfolio builds and we get all of these small, significant advancements, they build significant force that will at some point cascade to broader change and then those impacts will be a lot more important. I'm not diminishing the importance of a ban snares in any way shape or form, something that I have to campaign for. It's a, it's a fantastic achievement. And one of the problems we faced is those that believe that the best way forward is for everything to stay as it was because as it was was better than it is now. But as I've already pointed out, and I don't need to tell the people whose house were, houses were inundated by water um, in, in the last month, or all of those people who've gone out on those surveys and found less things to survey, that things need to change. The problem that we face is that the human species is a remarkable organism. Intelligent, adaptable, resourceful, creative, imaginative. I could go on. We're pretty good, except they're not very good at changing our minds. We're not very good at prevention, even when we have all the evidence before us that we should be instigating patterns and processes to make our lives easier. We find it, unfortunately, easier to not do anything until we have to, until we have to cure a problem. But 
curing extinction is not possible. So at this point in time, we are trying to compel people to change their minds more rapidly than they wish to, because they're entrenched in a system which is broken, and it's easier, unbelievably, for them to want to stay in that broken system than it is to think, this is not a problem I'm faced with, but an opportunity. And there's another key difference. What we see as opportunities, other people see as problems. And part of our job now is to convert that, to show them that by making those changes, undertaking those reforms, that will be a positive benefit to them. Not addressing a problem, but seizing an opportunity. In terms of how we affect that, well, we have to campaign. Sometimes we have to protest. And though I think a number of components that we need to think about in that process, I call them the three M's. Firstly, motivation. What has motivated you to come here today? Something has compelled you to give up your time to travel here to play a role in this discussion. That's the motivation. Now, it might be that you're angry. It might be that you're scared. It might be that you feel a compunction to do good, a good that you've recognized. It might be that you're guilty, feeling guilty for not having done enough previously, and you feel that you want to catch up as quickly as possible. It could be a multitude of reasons, but there's always a motivation. We don't do things for for nothing. There's always an underlying purpose. And understanding and respecting that motivation is really important. The second thing is method. How do we shape our campaigns, our protest, our activism to ask for change? What methods do we use? And if those methods are not working, why don't we change those methods. I mean, you could think, again, in the past, if we think about just one aspect that we will be discussing today, and that's the illegal persecution of birds of prey on driven grouse moors. In the past, we tried to work with that community, and essentially, for a long period of time, we were asking them for reform. We were trying to implement education. We were setting up partnerships. Okay, that method didn't work because the birds are still being killed. So we have to change our method, and the method that we've sought to use is to ask for licensing of those moors so that if they misbehave, they can be properly regulated. So that would be an instance where we've changed our method. But I think too often, when it comes to instigating environmental or conservation change, we don't update our methodology rapidly enough. We are still tinkering around the edges, standing outside the room, being too timid. What is very clear at this point, in order to affect that restoration, repair and recovery, we need mandatory changes. That's why we're moving towards licensing, and that's why we want a ban on snares, not a voluntary code of practice, because we run out of time. The last M is the message. So we've got the motivation, we are thinking about our methods, hopefully we're reshaping those methods if they're not working, but equally at the end of that, if we're campaigning, if we're activists or protesting about something, is the message getting across 
to those people who are going to be able to affect that change or instigate it indirectly, such as the ban on snares being instigated by the Scottish Government. If that message is not reaching its target, then we're not acting effectively enough. And I would argue that that's another one of the legacies that our generations carry as a failure. We haven't acted rapidly enough, broadly enough, and we haven't got those messages to the right places at the right time. So that's something that we need to address once again. And the reason I mention this is because I think another cause for celebration today, outside of the ban on snares and the move towards licensing, is that the Revive organisation is a very intelligent example of how contemporary conservation should be working. Revive is made up of groups that have concerns about animal welfare, about conservation, and about social justice. Because it has recognised that we cannot look after the natural world without looking after the people that live in it. That is a, a realism that should have been grasped a long time ago. What Revive does is take all of the knowledge, all of the science, all of the research, and frame that in a way which is an opportunity, not a problem. Got a coalition of, in some ways, quite disparate groups. You know, when it came together on that day, it was just brilliant. I just really, really, really enjoyed, really enjoyed it. it. Yeah. We were at uh, another conference more or less the same week, which was the Festival of Survival. And one of the speakers on there, young campaigner, she was campaigning about vapes. And she also was describing how the success of her campaign, it kind of snowballed from, started off with, with litter, and then it became a green element. It was an environmental hazard. Then there was a health hazard. Then there was marketing things at children. Your coalition is the same, it seemed. It started off with grouse moors, then you had raptors, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the end, it was land justice and the future of taxation almost in Scotland. It, it, it got huge. I think one of the reasons that you get a lot of people coming together is unfortunately because the problems are that big that you need to bring yeah. lots of different uh, campaigns to get groups together, whether it's environmental, animal welfare, land reform, justice, what I'd reflect on there. But yeah, in regards to the land justice side of things, that yeah. the reason we put that towards the end of the day, talking about land reform and the need for land taxation, making up of Scotland's land from the 400 or so people that own half of Scotland's land, saying that we aren't against land ownership, we just want tens of thousands more landowners. Yes. Uh, the reason we put that towards the end was because, uh, you know, that is the progression of the campaign. The land reform bill is going to be going through Parliament, uh, I think it's going to be towards the end of this year, so we'll be busy putting towards work, uh, work to that end. Other organisations together to see what we can do together to make that as strong as possible and maybe build in the foundations for that for proper land taxes going forward too. Andy Whiteman's proposed land bill I thought was extraordinary compared to what the Scottish Government's first cut, you know, what the consultation was. It seemed, when you looked at the two, Andy's just seemed so much more bold and comprehensive and would make a real difference. So it'll be very interesting to see if there's any movement between those two. Yeah, you do get an impression. Well, more than an impression, it's what you see, isn't it? The Scottish Government goes very cautiously, they do a bit, and it's, you think, you know, mm -hmm. do a bit more, and then maybe a bit more happens. So this next clip, it gets us to the question about why there's an emphasis on grouse moors, doesn't it? It's, yeah. um, 
if I remember, it's Robbie Marsland. So Robbie right. Marsland, and he talks about this um, circle of destruction. It's really quite an eye-opener. So I don't know what you think about shooting grouse and, and uh, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, the ethics of it, shooting an animal for fair entertainment. But what we've always said to people is, whatever your stance on that, have a think about this circle of destruction that it surrounds that activity, which is designed to ensure there is an overabundance of grouse to shoot for entertainment. If you're going to shoot hundreds of thousands of wild animals, then you need to make sure there is going to be a reservoir, as they call it, to shoot next year. If you shoot them all, that's the end of your sport. So you have to make sure there's an unnaturally high number of grass. And to do that, you uh, put out chemical medication to stop grouse from getting a disease. You kill mountain hares. And I'm glad to say one of the first successes of the campaign was a ban on killing mountain hares. That was one of the very early successes we had. The mass trapping of, of wildlife is still going on. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals killed each year because they're thought to reduce the number of grouse and they need to have more grouse to make sure their sport continues. Burning of peatlands, Muirburn, huge issue. Muirburn is burned to make sure that there is more food for grouse so that there are more grouse to shoot. Unfair land use in terms of the sheer size of the land and tracks and roads which go across the moors and, of course, the, the killing of birds of prey. Revive is described by the Scottish Gamekeepers Association as a wrecking ball. A wrecking ball. Now, my view is that what Revive is calling for is more jobs in the rural community, more access of local people to Scotland's land, and more chances of making an economic success of that land. And my hope is that in the future, Scottish Gamekeepers Association will see us as a force for good and not a wrecking ball. You were involved giving evidence or, or speaking to the, at the, the consultation stage of, of this bill. And what was that like? It's interesting because, I mean, these, these committees, they're not there for you to give a large diatribe speech. It's not for it's an evidence session. Yeah. Of course, a lot of the evidence you give is already, you know, has been produced in writing. So, and you've got a limited amount of time. There's a huge table with many different interests of people, loads of people from the, lar the large landowned owned estates lobbies, and uh, some or some of us organisations as well that were pro reform. Uh, and, and doing it, you know, you've got three or four opportunities maybe to say something. I was focusing on getting our talking points through, which were particularly important to our campaign, asking the questions that were the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room being, there's this grouse moor bill going on. Uh, we're talking about trap licenses to, and licensing for muir burn, the burning of heather, so more grouse can be shot, manipulating the environment. We're talking about licensing these activities. Okay, great, fantastic. Let's do that. Let's put it under national framework. Uh, but what are the licenses to do these things going to be given for? Is it acceptable to dish out licenses? for trapping in Scotland for the purpose of grouse shooting, for the purpose of maintaining and increasing the numbers of wild birds to be shot by a few people for sport. And the same with uh, Muirburn and burning as well, burning huge tracts of land over 200,000 uh, 
football pitches worth of land so that um, more grounds can be shot for sport. Uh, so when you put it that way, uh, that, that's the that's what I was trying to get in there and get the MSPs to think about. We support the bill in general. It's a good intervention into land management practices. It could be stronger, and that's what we we're trying to do: address these uh, these, these big the big elephants on the ground, somewhere if you want to call it that. We haven't decided to ban all traps. Um, I'm afraid. But, uh, well, certainly not for the purpose of sports shooting. No, uh, license them all. Um, currently in the legislation, it says they have to require training every ten years, which is a bit ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so it's not. We're looking to ban snares entirely. This was very interesting. Snares, of course, being the like just recognise them as being the the loop of wire, uh, which is designed to you know catch the catch animals as they go through narrow areas. Often in grouse moor areas, they'll be uh, surrounding what's called a stink pit, which is piles of rotting dead animals designed to lure other animals into these snares. And they'll also be placed um, elsewhere as well. These snares, um, they're cruel, they're indiscriminate. They catch household pets. They catch non non target species like badgers and uh, others. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, are cruel and discriminate. And so we welcome the Scottish government to ban them. And the interesting thing about the process was the shooting industry had a rebranding attempt of snares. Some of the way into this bill, they uh, they said, well, okay, well we accept that snares should be banned, but how about these humane cable restraints? <laughs> humane cable restraints uh, are snares. There's even, there's even been a graphic that was put up by some of those uh, from the Shooting Fraternity which advertised a humane cable restraint, uh, and it was the same image as a snare. So the League Against Cold uh, Sports ran a spot the difference social media campaign just to show them right next to each other, which I thought was quite clever. Yeah. And yeah, the government weren't fooled. Uh, I didn't think they would be, but after an evidence session on it, in the parliament, which lo loads of views were exchanged, the government were, were, were like, yeah, we're not fooled. Yeah, we're going to properly ban snares. So, uh, yeah, I hope that it stays strong and it's not amended out of the legislation in any way. Uh, but we're quite encouraged by the government minister, Gillian Martins, addressing this properly. And if you might remember being at the Arrive conference. She was given a standing ovation in absentia for, yes. uh, for th that decision. The next thing we're going to look at is Dr Helen Armstrong explaining what Muirburn is and why it's an issue. I'm sure everybody here is very familiar with this landscape. The patches of Heather Merland that are burned on a rotation between eight and 25 years to create this landscape which has a mosaic of different heights of heather that provides the best feeding and the best nesting habitat for red grouse, which helps to support the high numbers of red grouse that are needed uh, to make driven grass shooting viable. So it's done for that one purpose. It mostly takes place in the east of the country, where it's drier. So around the Monalia, the Cairngorms, the Angus Glens, Highland Perthshire, Lammermuir Hills, and parts of the southern uplands is where muir burning for grass takes place. The Jameson estimated it was about 163,000 hectares, or 2% of Scotland's land area, which doesn't actually seem very much, but on a local basis, it's, it's highly significant. And you'll see if you drive up the A9 through the Dromocta Pass, there's just, it's just desolation. So what is being burnt? There's three different vegetation types that compose the heather moorland that gets burnt, starting from the wettest. So blanket bogs are, as the name suggests, bogs. The, the water tables up at the, the surface of the, of the soil. 
Now, they're usually dominated by bog mosses, sphagnum mosses, and there's usually many species of sphagnum mosses. And those sphagnum mosses act as sponges. They absorb water when it rains and when it dries out. They allow that water to gradually filter away. In between those bog mosses, there'll be bits of heather that grow. And as the bog moss uh, grows up, the heather will grow up, grow up through the bog moss. Now, because it's so wet, when the bog moss dries, it doesn't decompose properly, and so it turns into peat. So underneath the blanket bog, you will generally find a deep layer of peat, peat that stores carbon. Okay, so at the other end of the scale, there's dry heath, so much drier areas where the, the water is draining. You'll tend to get, a, naturally, a much higher cover of heather. And in between those two, you get the wet heath. So, what are the impacts of all this burning? Let's start with blanket bog. Okay, if you burn in a blanket bog, what happens is it affects the, the composition of the vegetation. So those bog mosses that are so important for the, the water relations, the bog mosses in some places will be killed by burning. So you get a, a change in the, in the cover of the bog mosses, it declines. And instead, because it's drying out, you get more grass and you get more heather. Well, that may be good if you want to graze sheep or if you want to encourage a high density of grouse. Um, but it completely changed the system, both the water relations, the, the amount of carbon that's sequestered. So because of the loss of the, the, the bog mosses, you get reduced water storage. Often there will be uh, peat that's exposed. So when the water falls, when it rains heavily onto the peat, it increases the erosion and the peat gets eroded. So there are a lot of impacts of burning on blanket bogs. And they affect the, the ecosystem services, the services that the system can provide to us. So in terms of carbon emissions, carbon emissions increase because the peat is exposed. So it decomposes and turns into carbon dioxide. Carbon sequestration goes down because the bog mosses aren't there to create the peat. And creating peat, they sequester carbon from the atmosphere and they bury it. So carbon sequestration declines. The number of bog species that are specific to these really important habitats declines as well. You don't get the same range of bog mosses. You don't get the invertebrates such as the dragonflies. So biodiversity declines too. And because that water storage isn't there, the peak water flow also gets higher, which means that flood amelioration lower down doesn't happen. So we lose that important ecosystem service as well. And lastly, because of all the erosion that's happening, the water quality goes down. The water turns peat coloured. It's full of uh, minerals and, and organic compounds that flow into often what's a water supply. But that's not the end of the story. Many of our bogs in the past have been drained specifically to dry them out, to increase the amount of heather and the amount of grass. And drainage does all of those same things, but it doesn't even more so. And then if you burn on top of a drained bog, the whole thing just gets worse. So it's been estimated that about 40% of the area that's burned for grouse is on deep peat, so is under something that could potentially be a functioning blanket bog. Okay, so that was, that was estimated about 2011. That may have declined a bit now. Um, more estates are starting to restore their bogs with government grants, so it may have declined. But still, a lot of the area that's been burned is on deep peats that could be functioning blanket bogs. What about the impacts on the rest of the air, the drier heaths? 
Well, the most important impact that burning has, of course, is it kills young trees and it kills scrubby species such as juniper that would otherwise colonise those areas and turn them into a mosaic of woodland and scrub and open habitat. It also leads to increased erosion because there are areas that are um, devoid of vegetation after they're first, they're first burnt. So particularly in susceptible areas, so steep slopes, high altitude, you can easily get erosion and the soil and the peat get washed away. And over many decades, this leads to a loss of soil nutrients, particularly phosphorus, potassium and nitrogen. So many would say this leads to it being maintained, in, and I would agree, in a degraded state. And it's hard to argue with that when the biodiversity is lower than it could be, because you don't have the diversity of habitats to support the diversity of species. The ecosystem services that this system can supply to us have also gone down. Soils, water are all impacted. And the whole productivity of the system declines. Because of the loss of soil nutrients, it's ecologically less productive, but also it's less productive in terms of what it can supply to people, in terms of outputs, in terms of jobs. Because you don't have those productive mosaic of habitats that can supply things like deer to be shot or shelter if you want to graze your sheep in amongst the woodlands. All sorts of outputs, timber even, that you cannot get in this very simplistic system. So in an attempt to reduce the environmental impact of Muirburn, several years ago, Nature Scott's predecessor, Scottish Natural Heritage, put together a code of practice, the Muirburn Code. There's a whole range of locations uh, where you're not allowed to burn, where you shouldn't be burning. But at the top of that is deep peat, defined as anything with a peat depth of greater than 50 centimetres. You should not be burning on deep peat. All of the other ones, all of those other locations where you shouldn't burn, are designed to protect soils, water, and biodiversity. Now, this is wonderful. <laughs> the Muirburn Code is fantastic. If everybody stuck to it, it would be wonderful. But unfortunately, not only is the Muirburn Code entirely voluntary, but there is absolutely no monitoring goes on. This next clip was one that I was particularly really engaged with when, mm -hmm. when she was telling us, and it's Dr. Ruth Tingey, and she's just telling us about the raptors, how they track them, and, and then, of course, they notice that the tracking stopped, it, the raptor disappears. There's a whole lot of detail about what's happening, what happens when they lose track of it, but it is fascinating. And so she brings together all this evidence and it's very obvious that on, on some grouse moors, certainly not all of them, but on some grouse moors, the raptors are being persecuted. Now, this was actually a slide presentation, which obviously we can't bring you on the podcast version. But if you'd like to watch it, it is on our YouTube channel. But hopefully you'll get the gist of it from the description. So this is the, the main report commissioned by the Scottish Government, published by um, some excellent scientists, Phil Whitfield and Alan Fielding, based on uh, a lot of Golden Eagle satellite tag data. It's published in 2017. Um, and this is the report that found uh, all these eagles were disappearing in suspicious circumstances, um, predominantly clustered in areas that were managed intensively for driven grouse, grouse shooting. I should point out, I don't think that golden eagles are being taken out on every single driven grouse moor in Scotland. Um, that's not the case at all. There's some very good, good estates. 
but these eagles in, in these particular areas uh, were troublesome, and that's what led to Rosanna Cunningham commissioning the Werity Review. So when this report was published in 2017, um, demonstrating that all these eagles were disappearing, the opposition, the, particularly the gamekeepers, um, some, some of the landowning organisations, started this theory that it wasn't them that was killing or making these eagles disappear, came out with this theory that it was wind farms. Uh, wind farms must be responsible for all these deaths. And there was quite a lot of stuff in the, in the media, in certain parts of the media anyway, pushing this rhetoric that it wasn't them, it was nothing to do with grouse moors, it was all to do with wind farms. These are people who have lobbied the Scottish government um, for an exit strategy on white-tailed eagle reintroduction in case they eat Scottish children and babies, just to give you some perspective. So there's one claim in particular that I found quite interesting. It was focused on Chris and I um, in 2019 when one of the golden eagles from a project that we were working on together, uh, and a golden eagle called Fred, disappeared from next to a grouse moor um, in the Pentland Hills, so quite close to the Scottish Parliament, and we did quite a lot of publicity about it and uh, got quite a lot of traction from it. And that annoyed a lot of people in the game shooting industry. And there was this claim that, uh, that we were using satellite tags as, as a political weapon. And particularly, um, Scottish gamekeepers claimed the number of birds that they said were disappearing um, included cases where tags have fallen off or have malfunctioned. That's not the case at all. And hopefully, what I'm going to explain to you now um, will show you why that wasn't the case. So, when golden eagles are tagged, they're tagged by specialist uh, taggers. I think there's probably about half a dozen in Scotland, half a dozen people who are qualified to do this. It's a highly specialised uh, skill. And they're tagging these golden eagle chicks when they're uh, between 50 and 70 days in the nest. They haven't yet fledged. So once the birds fledge, we don't usually see those birds again after they've been tagged. What we do see, we get downloads of data from the tags, um, depends on the type of tag you're using and the duty cycle that you've programmed to how many times you get data coming into your laptop. If I opened up an email with one of, one of the eagles um, from our tagging project, uh, this is where this bird has been in the last few hours. Uh, the yellow dot tells you where it is now. Um, and this is a very zoomed out map. If I'd zoomed in on this on Google Earth, this would be giving me very, very, very precise um, locations of where this bird has been, sometimes even down to the, the actual tree that it's been roosting in. That's how powerful these tags are. So we get this every day, so we check in on, on the eagles. What we can do with those data, as, as well as checking every day that they're still alive and they haven't disappeared on a grouse moor, what we could do in a scientific context is... Um, put all these data together. This map just shows you uh, the data from one satellite tagged eagle, one of our eagles, um, that was hatched in the Cairngorms National Park. This, these data show all these red, this red mass, these are all flight lines from this bird over a period of a couple of years. And one of the things that our research group has been looking at is uh, the interaction of satellite tagged golden eagles with wind farms 
because wind farms uh, are a particular issue for raptors in some countries, and they could be in this country. This slide shows you quite clearly these, these pale blue areas are the footprints of wind farms in the Monolith Mountains. You can see quite clearly that this young golden eagle is avoiding going into the, those wind farm areas. There are some flights over the, over the wind farm, but we know from tag data, because it tells us what altitude the bird is flying at, this bird was not flying through the turbines. So as well as those maps of showing us the data, we also get data downloads every day from the tag. So this is giving us locational data. So we've got latitude and longitude. The tags that we're using, that we're, we're using particularly, are uh, solar powered. So they're not going to stay on a high voltage continually throughout the year. Some, sometimes in the year, the, the battery is going to drop. And it tells you when the battery is dropping. So there's still enough power in the tag to tell us that the tag is active, but there's not enough power to give us um, a longitude or, or latitude. So that won't give us any cause for concern. So we will not be classifying this as a disappeared eagle because it's not sending us data. We class it as, as an eagle that's still okay, but the, the battery voltage is low, that's all. The other part of, of data that we get is engineering data that, that tells us the state of the tag, the status of the tag. So you've got uh, time and date, uh, the temperature, the voltage of the battery, that's really important. So if this drops down, we can say, okay, the battery voltage is, is low. It's not a cause for concern. It's just the battery's low and we've just got to wait for the sun to come back up uh, and recharge the battery. Probably the most important column is the activity column. Um, down this column, that number is the same all the way down. There's no movement there. That is a massive red flag. If I opened up this email and saw that column, I'd be thinking, Christ, what's happened here? It's telling me that the tag is static somewhere. Either the tag has dropped off, as they're designed to do after a few years. When the tag drops off, if it's still, um, if it's still got, got voltage battery power, it will still transmit. So it means that we can go to the last known location and collect the tag. And we'll have it refitted and, and use it again. Or that static number tells us that the bird is dead, but the tag is still transmitting. And this is what happened for quite a few years when satellite tagging first started, because the people killing the eagles didn't realise that when they killed the, the bird, they, they didn't realise that the tag would still transmit. So this is a bird that was killed um, in the Angus Glens a few years ago. Now you can see it's got a satellite tag on it. The satellite tag data showed that this bird travelled through the night um, into a, a lay-by in Aberdeenshire where it was left to die. When that news came out, the people who were killing these eagles realised, okay, uh, these tags can reveal quite a lot, so let's change our tactics. So what they're doing now is these eagles are disappearing. Uh, within our research group, we call this a sudden stop, no malfunction, when the tag stops operating. If there's a malfunction, we've seen it, we've already seen it in the data, we can see that there's a low, low battery voltage. If everything's working perfectly, and there's no explanation, there's no indication that this, uh, this engineering work is about to expire, this is what we call sudden stop, no malfunction. So everything's fine, all looks fine, all of a sudden, 
it just stops. And you don't hear any more from that bird. Disappeared. No evidence. You go to the last known location. There's nothing there. We've been wondering what's happening to those birds. We can, we can make a pretty educated guess. Um, but a couple of years ago, a member of the public found this in a river in Perthshire. Um, didn't know what it was. There's a, a sticker on the, on the side with a phone number. And luckily for us, that guy phoned the phone number um, and got through to Phil Whitfield, who's one of the researchers on this project, uh, and said, oh, I found this thing in the river. I don't know what it is, but it's got your phone number on it. This is a Golden Eagle satellite tag that's been uh, cut off a bird. Uh, it had been wrapped in lead sheeting to block the signal, and it had been chucked in the river. And we know exactly which bird this has come from because this tag has an individual number on it. It comes from a young bird being tagged several years before, and the bird had been one of these that had disappeared. Where had it disappeared? Strathbrom, one of these cluster areas uh, that are notorious as golden eagle persecution hotspots. So it's all starting to make sense. So now we know about Muirburn and we know about tracking raptors. Now we can go in and listen to Gillian Martin introducing the wildlife management of Muirburn Bill at Holyrood. And this time we'll understand what she's talking about and also look out for Rachel Hamilton's intervention. I was the convener of the Environment, Climate Change and Land Reform Committee in 2020 when the independent Grouse Moor Management Group, led by Professor Werity, presented their report on the environmental impact of grouse moor management practices. That report made it clear to me and my then committee colleagues that previous measures this parliament had put in place to address raptor persecution were insufficient and that we needed to consider further regulation of activities traditionally associated with grouse moor management, including muirburn, predator control and the use of medicated grit. Sadly, since the Werity report was published, the issue of raptor persecution has not gone away. Even just last week, I read reports of missing hen harriers. And on Monday, I'm sure everyone in the chamber will have read the same reports that I did, that a satellite tag golden eagle, Merrick, in the south of Scotland has come to harm, according to Police Scotland. And on Tuesday, a peregrine falcon was found dead in an illegal trap in the Pentlands. I, of course, recognise the important contribution that grouse shooting makes to the rural economy. Grouse moors can be successfully managed in a way that doesn't negatively impact on the environment or biodiversity, and a great many of them are acting responsibly. But we need to end the blight of raptor persecution that takes place on the few estates that give the sector a bad name, and to quote from the Weddity Review, change the culture of grouse moor management. The introduction of a licensing scheme for grouse is a proportionate measure to achieve these aims. It provides us with the means to take effective action against the destructive minority who continue to illegally target birds of prey while allowing law-abiding grouse moors to operate without undue interference. I from... Yes. Uh, Rachel Hamilton. Um, can the Minister uh, give us evidence that the specific incidences that she is talking about are related to grouse moors? Minister. 
Well, uh, in, my, in my response to the committee report, which uh, uh, Ms Hamilton will have sight of, I have put an appendix in place which actually outlined that, uh, uh, you know, that, that detail, detail that I don't ha have time to go through right now. But I would also uh, refer Ms Hamilton to the RSPB's report, which was published last week, which actually outlined that there had been 35 uh, various raptor disappearances since 2017, and they actually identified that quite a lot of the instances of where this has, had happened were on uh, grouse moors, I'm sad to say. The introduction of uh, a licensing scheme for grouse is a proportionate measure. It provides us with the means to take effective action against the destructive minority who continue to illegally target birds of prey and allowing law-abounding grouse moors to operate without undue interference. I firmly believe that licensing is in the interest of the grouse moor sector and I have, uh, to have them regulated in the same way that shooting estates are across mainland Europe. Licences, I firmly believe, will be good for the public reputation of those estates, those many estates who hold licence and abide by the licence, including a statutory code of practice that will be developed in conjunction with stakeholders, will allow us to build on the best practice that I know many Grossmere managers are already undertaking. I'll move on to Muirburn. Muirburn is a very complex issue and research to date suggests that it can have both beneficial and adverse effects. The provisions in the bill are therefore designed to ensure that Muirburn will always be undertaken with the necessary care and expertise. And I know everyone in this parliament is aware of the essential roles that our peatlands play in capturing carbon and enhance, enhancing biodiversity. That is why this bill includes provisions to strictly limit the making of Muirburn on peatland. But this bill is not just about moorland management. We also have a very strong record in this parliament of promoting the highest standards of animal welfare and legislating to ensure all these standards are upheld. Accordingly, the bill addresses two key recommendations made by the Scottish Animal Welfare Commission to ban the use of glue traps and snares. Uh, the government are I think staying as strong as they are on the grouse moor reform issue because of positive feedback from thousands of people, many of them that come from uh, supporters of, a, of the work we do as well, uh, which of course we're amazingly grateful for. We were just reflecting that although there's people brought together because they're interested in that topic, it's quite interesting from a, an independence perspective because although none of these things are about independence, it floats up every time as being hugely significant in what you can do and, mm -hmm. and what the barriers are to doing stuff. There's no way of knowing in an, an audience of 700 people that you had at that conference how many of them were independent supporters. I would like to think more than half, but that's not why they were there necessarily. It's sort of a way of reaching people yeah, I mean, the divide doesn't have a constitutional uh, point of view. It doesn't have, yeah. you know, I'm, I wouldn't probably guess what way I lean, but without <laughs> me actually saying it, but, uh, you know, we work with people from different parties, Labour, Greens, SNP, more, you know, and yeah, we wouldn't, I, I wouldn't stab a guess as to what our constitutional persuasion was from there. But so one of the things I sometimes do, like, you know, I've said this in an article in The National I, I wrote a while back, well, one of the lines I said was, you know, that we don't have a constitutional standpoint as a wider campaign, but independence begins at home. Begins home. It begins at home with you. Uh, begins home in our at home with our, in our communities. 
they themselves can duplicate or clear independence over their communities, over their local areas, maybe through greater local democracy, through uh, you know taking back their land for their communities, for the people. And I think that's what land reform is. It's actually independence. It's independence over your resources, over your future. Uh, it's exactly what it, it's like, barring any constitutional change, uh, and just about everything that can be done with land reform can be done uh, without independence. But you could argue, if you're from a pro-independent standpoint, that this would uh, it, be an optimal way to claim independence using your land out with uh, out with uh, you know the, the the national question, and who knows where that could lead yeah. constitutionally down the line. In order to do that, for communities to take control of their land, it's actually communities using the power that they've got and deciding to do something with confidence. And a lot of our issues, well, we know we could guess at what the reasons are. We don't think we can do stuff that other countries manage to do perfectly well. We seem to have, you know, some kind of crisis of confidence about whether we can do it. And yet, in your own community, look at all the development trusts that spring up, and it's just people who live in that community who want to do something for the benefit of their community. Yeah. Interesting thought. It is. Interesting. It sounds like you've still got a, a fair bit on your plate for the rest of the year, uh, Max. As you know, as that bill gets nearer to being debated and hopefully mm -hmm. passed uh, strong in its strong form. So, um, are you optimistic? I'm optimistic that the bill will can remain relatively strong uh, the amendments that could make it ideal and far stronger i think we'll have to wait and see if we're being politically realistic about it you know it's not going to um well i don't think it's going to be miles away from where it is now um but some of the amendments that i'm confident of yeah. and yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that uh the ones that make the most difference can certainly uh you know go through you know, with the maybe SNP, Labour, Green support, but we'll certainly have, we have to wait and see. It's just really great to chat to you, Max, and yeah, fingers crossed for next week then, and mm. uh, you know, and for over the months, under over the months to come, and uh, I mean, you certainly had, in Fiona now, you certainly had two very, very satisfied, happy attendance at that conference, and and then, yeah, the, the getting the invite to Holyrood for the evening reception was kind of icing on the cake, really. It was. It was yeah, it was. If people want to get more involved, how do they do that? Uh, yeah, to do it, go on to revive.scot, uh, simply. As soon as you go on your phone or on the website, there should be an option to sign up to revive, sign the revive pledge. If you do that, you get access to the, mail the mailing list. Uh, and you get emails from me, kind of irregular ones. I don't like to bother people unless... Uh, unless there's something useful to say, you know, from me and my colleagues. So you'll get mail outs and that's how you updates on what's happening that's important. Uh, and you can also check out the news posts on it as well for something that's happening or social media. I think it's at, at Revive Coalition on Twitter. Fab. We'll, we'll put the link in the notes under our the podcast and the video as well. So if anybody wants to find out a bit more, that's a really good place to start. And uh, yeah, best of luck to it. We'll, we'll be keeping an eye on the committee and see what happens. So hope you enjoyed that. We found the conference was was really interesting. The whole the whole afternoon was fantastic. But th this gives you a flavour of it. And if you want to watch the whole conference, it is available on live stream on Independence Live's channel. The bill is finished, has now finished its second stage. We're recording this before then, so we don't know how that went. But there's certainly a need to kind of keep an eye on any amendments that um, were put forward, especially by opponents to the bill. I mean, it's it's come a long way, but it's not 
it's not a done deal yet. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode and maybe even found something useful to share in your next conversation with an undecided voter, please give us a like and please also subscribe. It's free. New episodes out every Friday. Catch you later. Bye now. Thank you.